Welcome to week two of Red Letter Living on Dwelling Place Church's Bible Study podcast platform. If you would like to join the live conversation, we'd love to have you on Zoom at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. For more information, visit our website at www.dwellingplacenc.com. We pray that you're blessed by what you hear today. Last week, we talked a little bit uh, of an overview of the Gospels. Uh, we talked about how they are the foundation of Christian faith uh, through fulfilling Old Testament scripture. Uh, we talked about four different perspectives and emphases and priorities um, and minds that the Gospels appeal to. And uh, starting in the book of Matthew, uh, we find that Matthew presents Christ as king. That's the main uh, point he wants to drive. That's the thing he keeps coming back to is that Jesus Christ is the Messianic King. He puts an emphasis on Christ's sermons. Uh, he appeals to the Jewish mind by prioritizing Christ in fulfilling of Old Testament Scripture. And so, in the way he's trying to prove that Christ is the King, the Messianic King from Old Testament Scripture is just by saying, hey, it's fulfilled here, it's fulfilled there, it's fulfilled here, it's fulfilled in all these different areas. And so he really drives home that point. And, uh, and this is also further emphasized through the fact that he cites more Old Testament scripture than any of the other Gospels. So Matthew's really trying to hit home this fulfillment thing of uh, the prophecies and of the Old Testament of the prophets and the law and the Psalms and everything, how it all intertwines together and how Jesus fulfilled it. So Matthew builds his narrative around five major discourses or sermons that Jesus uh, proclaims, um, the first being the Sermon on the Mount, then Christ's mission and martyrdom, uh, three is parables of the kingdom, four teachings on the church, and five is Jesus's end time teaching later on in the book of Matthew. Um, and so after diving into chapter one of Matthew last week, we walked through uh, Jesus' genealogy um, through Joseph's line, his arrogant father, and uh, we talked about the 14 generations, um, there being a fulfillment of Daniel chapter nine, and uh, how the 70 weeks and the 490 years from that time, it lines up right with the time Jesus came and that prophecy was fulfilled out of Daniel 9. And we also talked about the genealogy code, that if you take all the names in the genealogy in that place, it, it actually makes a story, uh, a salvation story. And uh, it's very just interesting just to see that, and it's not totally perfect, but it, it, it works, and it's really cool to discover. Um, and then we talked in verses 18 through 24, we followed Joseph and Mary as they began to follow what God had spoken to them. And again, we see scripture fulfilled, um, and we see a remarkable level of faith and obedience um, on Joseph's part, as well as Mary. That Mary had the faith to believe the angel of the Lord and say, you know, be unto your maiden as you have proclaimed. Uh, and Joseph was just had a dream from God, and he followed it to the letter. He obeyed. He named Jesus Jesus. He took Mary to be his wife, and he just believed God. And so it was very cool to have an emphasis on Joseph as well. And so this week, we're now going to pick up in chapter 2. Um, with this, we're going to talk about the Magi's visit, the flight to Egypt, and the return to Nazareth. So really cool stuff in here. And uh, we're going to start out with verse 1. We're going to go ahead and read that. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, if you just want to listen or follow along, verse 1 reads in chapter 2. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. 
So Matthew skips, I'm going to stop right there, <laughs> kind of abrupt, but Matthew skips much of the nativity story, uh, and he picks up after Jesus is born, and Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem was the birthplace of King David, and in Hebrew, Bethlehem means the house of bread, house of bread. Um, but so just in the first sentence of verse 1, we see hints of the promise of David's seed having a throne forever. If you look at Psalm 132, verses 11 and 12, uh, God tells David that his, his seed will be established forever. And Bethlehem uh, being the place that David was born. Uh, it's kind of a, a hint back to that psalm and that uh, prophecy in that time. So in the Messiah, um, being born in Bethlehem, uh, that prophecy is found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And, uh, and, and it was actually found in the scribes in this text in verse 6, which we'll get to that in a moment. But uh, I find it interesting that God saw fit for his son to be born in a town that not only was a fulfillment of David's seed, being David was born there as well, but that the name of the town was the House of Bread. So we have the Bread of Life, which Jesus mentions himself as later on in John's Gospel. So we see the Bread of Life, which is God's Son, enters this world to complete his mission, starting at the House of Bread. So the Bread of Life starts at the House of Bread. That's pretty cool. I just thought that was, that was interesting. But uh, furthermore, another parable that we see is that Bethlehem was in Judea, or Judah. And you know that Judah means praise. So Psalms 23, 22-3 says that the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. So now we know that to be a powerful spiritual truth today, that when we praise God, his presence is there. God moves when we praise. Praise has a very much power in it. Um, we see multiple examples through Scripture when Israel praised the Lord at the tower of Jer or, or the walls of Jericho. The walls fell down flat, and so, and then we see it again with um, Jehoshaphat when they praised the Lord. So, very powerful stuff in praise. But um, with the Lord inhabiting the praises of His people, we actually see that in just the language of the text that is used here. Um, we actually see a, a physical, literal appearance of this text that Bethlehem is the house of bread. And it was in praise. So if the Lord is inhabiting the praises of his people, Bethlehem is in Judah, so the house of bread is in praise. So the bread of life was born in praise in the house of bread. So it's kind of interesting because some of the, the words and the meaning behind them actually is kind of a literal uh, interpretation of scripture. So it's pretty cool. Um, so now... Let's see. I'm actually going to read from verse 2 to verse 8 just to kind of give us the rest of this first section here. Um, and I'm going to go back and read verse 1 just so we can kind of get a complete picture of what's going on. Um, so now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, which was in Micah, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Ju Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily, or privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search di diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. 
Now Herod, a little backstory on Herod the king, he was known as Herod the Great. Uh, he was the first king appointed by Caesar uh, when Rome took over, and his title was, very interestingly, the King of the Jews. Um, and that is certainly what Herod wanted to be. He wanted to make a name for himself. He, the name, he was called later Herod the Great because he rebuilt the Jewish temple where Solomon's was and was destroyed. He rebuilt the Jewish temple, and he also built many cities and seaports, and he built them with extravagance. Uh, he really wanted to make a name for himself and build up Israel. But the way he built up these great places was by being a harsh ruler and taxing the people up to 30%. Uh, so he just taxed them viciously, and he was viciously protective of his position. Um, he executed a hundred prominent Jews uh, soon after he was appointed. Um, he killed three of his own sons, and he also killed his brother-in-law. Nice guy, right? Uh, the actual Roman Emperor Augustus said of Herod that he would rather be Herod's hog than his son. So, a little bit of backstory on Herod. Not a nice guy. And... Uh, yeah, rather be, and also, you know, we think of pigs today, we kind of like pigs. Back then, pigs were considered unclean, and, you know, you didn't really, they weren't considered all that. You didn't eat bacon. You didn't eat bacon, yeah. Thank God for grace and for bacon. Um, so, uh, King Herod ruled um, uh, around 37 uh, horrible years, um, and as we know in Scripture, he ordered that the male infants in Bethlehem to be slaughtered on account of there being a possible threat to his reign. Um, which we'll find that in verse 16 coming up. So Herod was someone that no one wept at his funeral. He, he passed on and they were glad of it pretty much. Uh, but learning of Herod, I'm reminded of the words of uh, the missionary Jim Elliot, who was a missionary to the Amazon jungle and he was martyred for the work of the gospel. He once said that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I think Herod tried to keep what he couldn't keep to and he lost everything that he had uh, so in our lives as we give our lives to christ and we give what we cannot keep then we gain eternal life which we will never lose and we gain eternal hope in him so this is who herod was um, coming to the last part of verse one uh, it says that wise men came from the east to jerusalem and uh you know that Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah. And uh, wise men originally were the priestly caste among the Persians and the Babylonians. Um, some uh, theologians think that they maybe came from Arabia. Um, but they were royalty. They were nobility. They were upper class people. Um, experts in the study of the stars. Um, and it is unknown what the star that brought them to Jerusalem. Um, whether it was natural or supernatural. Um, but whatever the phenomenon was, it certainly got their attention, enough to where they traveled a great distance to come to Jerusalem. And scripture doesn't also tell us how many wise men there were. We traditionally have three, given the, that scripture mentions the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, one for each wise man. So that's kind of a traditional thing. But uh, the wise men end up telling Herod, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Uh, though highly likely these men were Gentiles, right? They weren't Jews. They didn't uh, follow God in the messianic sense. They were. They still shared in the messianic hope of the Jews. They they believed that God was going to send a savior for the world. And they came and they wanted to worship um, the one who the star is leading them to. Um, by worship, um, 
some kind of commentated that it was more of like a homage to a monarch, that they kind of believed Jesus to be more of a king. And so by them meaning worship, it meant more of them just wanting to pay homage and honor to the new king who was to rule the world. But also, it could have been that they really believed Jesus to be a deity. They believed him to be God. And so there's kind of two schools of thought on that, but what, we do, what Scripture tells us is that they worshipped. They prostrated themselves. They gave gifts. And we see that God used it specifically for a purpose. Um, so they come to Herod, and they, they really think that basically everyone in Jerusalem knows uh, that there's a new king in town. Um, they said, you know, hey, we just showed up. Uh, where's the king at? And Herod, like, there's a king? And so we find Herod kind of freak out in verses 3 through 5. Um, it said, Herod heard these things. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So <laughs> I can imagine that uh, it was something where people were running around crazy. Herod is going frantic. I could see, I mean, this is just me, I don't know, but I can just see the wise men quietly put off in a room, being entertained and refreshed, and Herod is just completely trying to figure out what's going on. And it says that he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, and he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Uh, I don't think that this took necessarily five minutes. Uh, this sounds something that where they had to go, they had to gather up all the people, they had to throw the scrolls um, on the table and find out where was the Messiah supposed to be born at. And so there's all this craziness going on. And then we come to verse 6, where um, they read Micah chapter 5, verse 2, um, that, that uh, Bethlehem was going to be the place where God was going to uh, bring the Messiah to come into the world. And so uh, then we come to verse 7, and Herod comes back to the wise men, and he, he comes to them privately, calm, reserved, cool, collected, most likely. And uh, he said, uh, when, when did you first see the star appear? He's trying to get a feel for how old Jesus should be at this time. And uh, he was trying to be crafty and, and try to see, all right, you know, how old is Jesus? What kind of threat is this? How long has it been? Has it been 20 years? Has it been two days? So they kind of tell him. And it, from Scripture, we kind of see it must have been at least around, you know, before, under two years that they had seen it because he orders all the infants two years old and younger to be executed. Um, so then coming into verse 8, uh, it says that Herod sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. So we see Herod being trying to be a little crafty. Um, he wanted the wise men to do the work for him. Um, interesting to note, though, is that Bethlehem was only five to six miles from Jerusalem. Only five to six miles. So I actually Googled that, and that is about an hour and a 48-minute walk. So they didn't really have to go that far. <laughs> That's five or six miles. Um, so we're not really sure why no one went with the wise men. We don't know if it was very late. I mean, Herod could have sent a whole escort with them. Um, but we see that, you know, apparently the wise men went by themselves. And Herod just said, hey, go find him. And uh, from what we can tell in Scripture, it looks like the star appeared initially, which led them to Jerusalem. And then they must have not have seen it or it was daytime because if they had seen it the whole time, they would have just went right to Bethlehem and circumvent Jerusalem altogether. Um, but then we see, coming up in verse 10, um, but let me get to verse 9 first, that uh, it says, When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. So... Them being exceedingly joyful had to be from them seeing the star again, and not only seeing it, but actually having it to be in enough view where uh, they kind of were able to pinpoint the exact house. 
Um, so they must have at least been traveling pretty late in the evening enough to see a star. Um, and it was bright enough, large enough to where they knew exactly where to go. Um, so that was a pretty cool tid tidbit. And then in verse 11, um, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So in scripture, we, we don't see everyone at the Christmas nativity at the same time. Uh, during Christmas time, we usually see the shepherds, we see the wise men, we see, you know, all the people come together at the same time. Um, but it was at least two years or around of that time that Jesus was born. Um, so this is pretty interesting. Some actually think that when the angels first appeared to the shepherds and saying, you know, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth, good will to our men, that that great light that shone about at that encounter was the first light or star that the wise men saw, which led them to start their journey. I thought that'd be a pretty cool point. And then from there, it took them that amount of time to get to Jerusalem to where they were at. Um, some theorize maybe it was a meteor, some natural phenomenon. We really don't know, but um, we know that God used it. And it, I mean, it could have been, they called it a star. It could have just been a great light. We're not really sure. But um, remarkable about the wise men is that they show that Gentiles were among some of the first people to recognize Jesus as a king. Um, of course, we see first the, the Jewish shepherds that came and saw Jesus. Um, and you have Mary and Joseph and all of them at there. But then we see Gentiles also. Just another further fulfillment and confirmation that, yes, the gospel was for the Gentiles as well and that we've been grafted in. So we see that even in the nativity scene, there were Gentiles there. Um, and God used natural means in a supernatural way uh, to convey a message that these logical, scientific-minded men um, knew what the star meant. Um, so we see that the wise men specifically saw the star as a symbol of the Messianic king. It wasn't just a phenomenon that they thought, you know, oh, cool, that's a, that's a cool-looking star. I wonder what that's about. And it was at the end of the world. They could have thought any, any given thing, but they thought, hey, the first thing they asked when they arrived in Jerusalem, where's the king of the Jews? That they somehow were able to put those dots to connect. So just another very interesting point. Um, and we know, as the saying goes, that wise men still seek him, that wise men still seek not only the babe in the manger, but he who died and rose again. Um, amen. Can I get an amen? All right. Um, <laughs> going on to uh, the gifts that the wise men presented, uh, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, they were pretty much natural gifts for royalty at the time. Um, they say that they were, they were pretty normal, and they also kind of signify um, the homeland from where these men had come from. Uh, you know, the myrrh and the frankincense, I think, were more of an Arabian uh, root uh, from that area. So could kind of point back to where they came from. Um, but they do carry a, a symbolic significance. Um, the gold represents kingship. Um, the frankincense represents deity. And the myrrh represents burial. We know Christ was all those things. He was a king, he was God, and he came to die and to rise again. So we see at his birth again a reflection of the future what Christ was to accomplish. All right, and then in verse 12 and 13, the wise men, being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, 
saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So God really used um, a lot of dreams so far. Um, he used some dreams with Joseph, and he uses dreams with Joseph again, and he's using dreams with the wise men. Uh, so God's really using a lot of dreams at this point to get his, his point across. Um, so even though the wise men were ignorant of Herod's plot, his schemes, his craftiness, I mean, they, they were going to go back. They didn't have any idea about it. But when God warned them, they were like, okay, we're not going to go back that way. So they go another way and they listen to the dream of the Lord. And then we see that God gave Joseph a second specific dream, um, mentioning where to go, who was after Jesus, and again, we see Joseph's unwavering obedience. He's like, all right, I obeyed God on the first dream. He's telling me another dream. I'm going to act on this. And God was very specific to give him direction in those dreams. And God will give us specific direction, too, when we ask him for it. And so it's a wonderful promise for us. Um, going into verse uh, 14 and 15, um, it says that Joseph, when he rose after the dream that God gave him, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. Um, I really want to think that most, most likely was the same night that the wise men had found them. He just got up everything and, and fled to Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now going into Egypt, Egypt had a fairly large group of Jews who lived in the area. It wasn't just, just Egyptians or anything like that. There was actually a, a pretty significant Jewish population there. And Joseph and Mary would have been uh, able to stay there relatively easily. They would have been welcomed in by their people, um, by the other Jews in the area. And we see now why, Jesus, uh, why God had sent the wise men. They needed provision. They needed money. And they are now loaded with gold, frankincense, and myrrh for their travel expenses, for the housing they needed. And God made ample provision for Mary and Joseph to be able to make the trip and have every provision they needed for it. And so they had all the provision they needed for the flight in the night. And in Hosea, verse 11 and 1, that is fulfilled in here um, because it mentions that out of Egypt, God had called his son in Hosea 11, chapter 1. So, or sorry, Hosea 11, verse 1. Uh, so here we see another fulfillment. Matthew's all about fulfillment. He's all about fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. So here we see not only fulfillment of Micah, Earlier in verse 6, but we see fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, and that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and also went to Egypt and came out of Egypt. So, like, if anyone tried to put that together, like, <laughs> you know, how do you even make that fit? It's just incredible uh, how it all just works together. Um, then going into verse 16 through 18, it goes on to tell about what Herod did when he saw perhaps the next morning, because remember, Bethlehem wasn't that far at all. The wise men could have went, worshipped, and went back to Herod in probably four or five hours, did the whole trip. So then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the town which had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that was spoken by Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, In Ramah, or Judah, was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. So Jeremiah 31.15 was fulfilled here. 
Uh, Rachel is who we know to be the mother of Benjamin, um, who was one of the sons of Israel. And uh, this is alluding to her weeping of her descendants having been murdered, um, all those young males being killed. And so this is another scriptural fulfillment that there was going to be this massacre of children at this time. And so here we go, Matthew again, talking about fulfillment. And uh, verse 19 through 21, we have the return to Nazareth. So in verse 19 it says, But when Herod was dead, so Mary and Joseph had been in, e in Egypt for a time, and he had died, uh, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Here we go, another dream with Joseph, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead. Oh, sorry, I messed my page up. Verse 21. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Um, but when he heard that Archelaus, uh, which was Herod's son, did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream again, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now this is very interesting. Now Archelaus was one of Herod's sons that actually survived, and Herod didn't kill him off. Um, and this one, interestingly, was more wicked than his father. He only ruled a very few years, and he killed about 3,000 people at one time. Um, and actually, the Jews and the Samaritans complained about his leadership to the Roman emperor, and he was banished to Gaul. So the guy was short-lived, and so you can see kind of why Joseph wanted to skirt around him. Uh, the guy was even worse than his dad, so he didn't last too long. Um, and we see, again, as I said, Joseph has another dream where Joseph obeys God. It's more direction. Um, so this dream thing really worked well for Joseph. Um, so God just kept on using him because he was obedient. Uh, let me see. Uh, so now Jesus moved. This is interesting. So we see that Jesus went from Bethlehem to Egypt, and then from Egypt to Nazareth. Um, now, remember, Bethlehem is the house of bread. Um, now, Egypt means country or fertile land. Uh, and it was a place of bondage that God used, again, to be a place of refuge. Um, and then Nazareth means separated or sanctified. So sanctified means set apart. So we see that um, Jesus went from the house of bread to the country and then was sanctified and set apart. And in Nazareth, Jesus was set apart for some 30 years in Nazareth. Um, now, if we had Jerusalem in the middle, you had Bethlehem, which is about five to six miles to the south, and then Nazareth is 70 miles to the north of Jerusalem. So they definitely were set apart, given the road conditions, the animals, and the transportation they had in those times. Um, no one probably would have been looking for Jesus in Nazareth. It was very far. Uh, now, it is important to distinguish that while Jesus lived in Nazareth and was called a Nazarene, uh, he was not a Nazarite. Uh, there is no indication in Scripture uh, that Jesus was like Samson and that he uh, didn't cut his hair, uh, didn't touch any dead things, or drink any wine. Um, and furthermore, the original words used for Nazarite and Nazarene are starkly different. Um, and so the words used here is that Jesus was a Nazarene, meaning from Nazareth, and not one who did the Nazarite vow like Samson.
So completely different words are used for that. So it's good to make that distinction. Um, now this is very, very unique. Is that this is the first fulfillment of Old Testament scripture that actually doesn't pretty much have an exact quote from the Old Testament. Um, Matthew says that it was the prophets had spoken um, that he shall be called a Nazarene. But we can't find that exact phrase anywhere in the Old Testament. He shall be called a Nazarene. So, a few theories on that. Uh, Matthew doesn't take an exact quote from there. Um, but we think that he was looking at the, the sense uh, of, of the concept that Jesus would be a Nazarene, and shall be called a Nazarene. Uh, to be from Nazareth was to be from a place of contempt. Uh, Nazareth was a rich place of produce, um, but the area got a bad reputation of not producing good people or good resources. Um, so much so that later on, one of the disciples says, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It had that reputation. It was a proverb among the people. It was a place of contempt. And if we look at Psalm 69 and 9, and also in Isaiah 53 and 3, both of them talk about Christ being rejected and a man of sorrows as well as many other scriptures allude to that fact. Um, so, some of the arguments on this portion of scripture are that Matthew either paraphrased the writing um, from perhaps one of these many scriptures about Jesus being a man rejected and a man of sorrows. Um, others think that the writing, perhaps that exact quote, was once in existence, but somehow no longer is. Maybe, uh, I don't think it's found in any of the apocryphal writings, any of those that are... Um, that some people had thought were scripture, but not really were considered part of the canon, uh, which that's a whole other debate. Um, but um, Or some think that he quoted the thought or the idea of Christ um, being one who would suffer reproach. And I think that is probably, that is my favorite argument of them. <laughs> if I was to steer you more toward one or the other, um, is that he took the concept that being a Nazarene meant you were rejected of men and afflicted. Um, and if you look at the fact uh, that Nazareth meant set apart or sanctified. Um, there are so many scriptures about Jesus being the anointed one, the holy one, the set apart one. So Nazareth was a fulfillment of Jesus being the set apart one. Um, and so also interesting is that, you know, Jesus lived in the bad part of town, so to speak. Um, Nazareth wasn't a great place of uh, reputation. Uh, so that'll kind of preach by itself, you know, that... Uh, you know, Jesus goes into the places that some of us may be afraid to go into or that uh, may look intimidating, but Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Um, another interesting thing about Nazareth is that it is mentioned again later in Jesus' life when he's crucified. Um, the sign above him uh, read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Uh, so Jesus, the one set apart, the King of the Jews. Um, so Nazareth was a place of bad esteem, and uh, Christ was crucified with the accusation of being from Nazareth. It's also a beautiful representation of Christ being separ uh, separated and the sins of the world being set upon him, that uh, those who were reproached and those who are the unloved, that Jesus likened himself as to one of those, of one of the outcasts, of one of those who no one else liked. And he took the sins of the world upon himself and paid the price for our sins. So it's kind of a, a beautiful symbolism there. So we see this kind of, again, it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament, but in a different way or thought than as before, being a direct quote of fulfillment, which we've seen a lot of till this point. And just for only Matthew chapter 2, and uh, we've seen it a whole bunch. 
Um, so, looking after this, uh, the Magi's visit, the flight to Egypt, um, and the return to Nazareth, um, a few thoughts I would like to share about this chapter um, are that the wise men, they searched so hard for Jesus, um, and they journeyed so far, but after they worshipped him, what happened to them? We don't really hear them much mentioned anymore in scripture, um, and so they acknowledged the babe in the manger who was to be a king, um, but were they the kind of people that today um, we would liken them maybe to the, the people who'd only go to church on Christmas? You know, or, or were they that kind of people who, you know, think that, you know, if I give Jesus my gifts, um, or I give him a, a sample of my time and my effort, will that win my salvation? Or, you know, so we don't, we don't know. They, uh, they went on their way. And so they sought the king, but did they have an expectation that was anything different from him uh, as being a savior? You know, what was their view of Jesus? And actually, in the book, um, Ben-Hur, which is a fictional account of uh, a man living during Christ's time on earth, um, actually has uh, one of the wise men called Belteshazzar uh, talk to Ben-Hur, the protagonist in the story, um, by saying that a king's gift would uh, save Israel from Rome's rule, which is what most of the people were looking for. Ben-Hur was a zealot. He wanted uh, Christ to come. He was preparing an army for Christ so that when Christ came, they'd conquer Rome. He was looking at it in a very literal sense in that sense, but he says that... Uh, a king's gift would save Israel from Rome's rule, but God's gift would be able to save men's souls. And that shifts uh, Ben-Hur's perspective in the story. He begins to look at Christ differently, and um, he ends up seeing at the end of the story that why Jesus came. That it wasn't just to conquer Rome, but it was to conquer sin, death, and the grave, which is so much greater and so much more of a godly gift. Um, so we all have a perspective of who God is. Um, but we need to learn him for who he truly is and not merely what we expect he should be. Um, I think a lot of people can fall into a trap with this because um, it's so important to learn who God is from Scripture um, because our thoughts are not his thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They are higher than our ways. And I think a lot of times we have an expectation of who God should be when really God is so much greater, so much bigger than the box we put him in. And so... Learning and having that relationship with him is just to learn of who he truly is. And, uh, and it's just a wonderful thing because he's infinite. And so there's always something to learn about him. So none of us have ever arrived to, to know everything there is to know about God. Uh, so it's a wonderful thing. So in contrast to the wise men who, who came, and then we don't really hear much of them, about them anymore in Scripture, is we have Herod. Uh, he couldn't be further from God. Uh, it would seem he desired to, to stifle what God was doing. I mean, here's a man who, who is put in position by Rome, and in searching the scripture, he's trying to find the prophesied Messiah to kill him. Um, this is not a good dude. He wanted to completely usurp the plan of God. Uh, he wanted to rule as long as he could, and he saw Christ only as a threat. Um, he saw him as a revolutionary. Um, so he did not like Christ in the, in the slightest. And it's just crazy that we see these both extremes of men um, and that God used both of them to fulfill what he promised. God used the wise men uh, to, for his plan, for his purpose, for them to bring provision for Mary and Joseph, for them to see the star in the east and to come. And God used very wicked Herod um, to fulfill scripture and to uh, work in those ways too. So it's just incredible to see that contrast between the two of them, yet 
God's not had his way. Uh, so whether we come to Christ seeking his kingdom or looking to tear it down, God's will is going to happen. So the question is, is how will we approach him? How will we approach him?